Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. And Bennett's, it's great to have you uh, share with us today. Appreciate uh, catching at least part of that this morning. And um, it's just fun to hear your heart for disciple making and all the things that you've done and obviously got a lot of things in front of you. We will certainly be praying with you and appreciate your ministry and glad we could be part of it. I'm gonna invite you just to bow before we step into the scriptures this morning and we'll just uh, bring ourselves before the Lord. Father, we thank you that the real issue, I suppose, in terms of our time here this morning is not whether you're with us, but whether we're paying attention to you. We, uh, we know that you are always with us. Jesus promised that. He gave us his spirit to indwell our lives. And so the challenge for us in a very highly distracted and chaotic world is not whether you're with us, but whether we have the spiritual eyesight to know that you're with us. We ask that you will continue to help us live according to the power of your personal presence to allow you to reshape our own values and beliefs and priorities so that we are constantly adjusting our lives to adjust to the truths of your word and the promptings of your spirit. Father, on the things that we wanna to touch on today, I again acknowledge that there are brilliant people who come out on different sides of some of the things that we're gonna talk about this morning we just pray you continue to forge in us uh, this deep commitment to keep searching the scriptures and to understand how you need to speak into our own lives in our own context. Father, we're, we know this morning as we position ourselves in Ephesians 5 that you're gonna speak to the issue of, of marriage and headship and submission and the validity of, validity of that. We ask that you will help us to continue to be students of your spirit and your word, and we just ask for wisdom as we continue to navigate these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the stories I've often told, unless you're fairly new to us, is that in our household, we had kind of a split home. Uh, my folks went to the United Church of Canada, which was an amalgamation of about three different denominational groups, and it wasn't very evangelical, it was very moralistic very strong on having good morals and having some sense of right or wrong. I remember at one point even talking with my dad. I asked him, so like, what's the point of the Bible? Like, what, what is its purpose? And he said, well, it's to give us a moral compass for our culture and society. I'd hate to ask him that question today. I mean, that was like 20 years ago and he, there was things that deeply frustrated him about the things that were going on in our culture. But that was kind of the extent of it. My dad never knew of a relationship with Christ until five days before he died. The person who was the spiritual anchor in our home was my mom. She was the one that from day one, uh, and she became a Christian after she got married, um, she was the spiritual anchor in our family. She's the one that helped us get connected to the, labor, the ladies across the street who were doing backyard Bible clubs where I trusted Christ. Uh, they were, she was the one that was kind of on the forefront that when my dad didn't want to go to church anymore, she, we lateraled into an evangelical Bible-believing church, surrounded us with people that spoke into our lives, and, and uh, it was, she took a lot of flack, in fact, uh, just being the, the, the mom in our family who was the spiritual leader, as, if you want to use that language, and the one who uh, kept trying to prod and encourage us to pursue Christ, uh, she would often make sacrifices just to keep nurturing and walking with my dad. It was funny, the people she got the most flack from was other Christian ladies in the church who basically said, I wouldn't put up with all this stuff. 
It's amazing that as we talk about this issue of headship and submission, uh, I probably should say this at the front end, even though I left it as one of my final points, but who knows whether I'll get there or not this morning, <laughs> is that we can create the perfect structure that we think exists, and because it's filled with dysfunctional people, it won't work. You can have the most dysfunctional structure in the world, but if you've got godly people, they can make anything work. And so as we step into this, I know that we're going to run into maybe individuals or churches and, and groups that may think differently about it. I hope to share an illustration at the end about a husband writing to his wife who was dealing with Alzheimer's and losing his mind about the real significance of relationships and marriage, especially the community of faith. The text we're in is Ephesians 5, and I don't know if I'm going to spend the whole time reading through the entire text, because you'd almost have to start in chapter 5, verse 18, get all the way through the end of 33, and even into chapter 6, 1 through 4, to understand the bigger picture, and we'll touch on those. The obviously key text is verses 22 through 24, which talks about wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now of course it goes on and talks a lot. In fact, it's always a little disturbing to me that it spends way more time telling the husbands what they ought to be doing than the wives. The wives basically submit to your husband and respect him and you're good. Men, it's like page after verse after verse, like, you know, and I, I think part of the humorous side of me goes, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, the warning was is that the wives' temptation, if things don't go well, is to manipulate, maneuver, and control their husbands to do what they want them to do. It's still a problem we have today. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about parenting or marriage or whatever it happens to be. There's always this temptation that wives convince themselves that I know better than he does and I'm going to try to maneuver him into what he needs to know. But the other side of it is the, the, the problem of men trying to rule or dominate their wives. And the whole argument gets built on this premise that the whole issue of hierarchy, where the husband has authority over their wife, is built on the fall, not on creation. We've walked through some of that in our journeys, but as you move into the New Testament and deal with Galatians 3.28 that says there's no distinction between male or female, you uh, set a different paradigm, or maybe you don't. As you begin to navigate these particular issues, it becomes complex to understand exactly the nature of it. So I want to walk you through some of the positions this morning in terms of at least understanding sort of both sides of the argument in brief. It's obviously not very exhaustive, uh, because there's whole books and articles written about this whole paradigm. But I want to at least introduce it to you and try to get a sense of at least uh, where I come out at the end in terms of what my convictions are in terms of this relationship. The first one is uh, discovering equality in the church begins, as I said, with Galatians 3.28 and 3.11 in Colossians that just talk about now there's no distinctions. When I look at those, both two, those two texts, I, I do note that there is no reference or talk about leadership roles and responsibilities. There's no discussion about spiritual gifts. In fact, if you really want to understand the nature of equality, Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says, if equality needs to touch any aspect of life, it's the community. It's the body of Christ and how they relate to one another. It's the idea of being forgiving and loving and, and compassionate. And that needs to define the nature of understanding this true sense of being equal in Christ, that we get rid of the idea of discrimination and prejudice. 
that the church ought to be the, the shining light and the example of how people ought to be treated in terms of this life. But the, but the idea here on one side of the argument is that hierarchy violates equality and any kind of gender-based authority violates Galatians 3.28. That's the primary, one of the primary arguments is that anything that would put man or woman above the other is a violation of this no distinctions between male and female. Secondly, headship and submission is an expression of fallen human nature and culture. And we referenced that just a moment ago. The third one is that any suggestion that the woman should be the only one to submit to the man violates equality in Christ. Now I will say at this point, most of the stuff that I've read about this, that any talk about headship and submission is talked of to me in very pejorative terms. It's, it's already negative because we know that it's bad. It's basically anchored to the fall of uh, the judgment that God places on Eve and Adam, that your desire will be to control or to manipulate, to influence your husband, and he is going to respond and dominate and rule over you. Now we need to recognize that's a consequence of the fall, not God's design. And so whatever we perceive the roles and responsibilities in creation is far better mix, because I don't think anybody Certainly I wouldn't justify that a man's dominion, if, it, if there is a hierarchy here, is not to be over his wife as if you, I'm in control of your life and I get to tell you what to do. It is something different than that. And I'm gonna propose that as we work through it. But the, the idea here is that as you think through this is that there's, the argument is there's no imperative anywhere in the scripture to suggest that man should rule over his wife. It's only stated as a consequence of the fall. However, conversely to that, just to be fair to the argument, there's never any imperative in the scriptures that says the woman should rule over her husband. That's the other side of the coin. So the, the strongest argument here is that Paul is simply accommodating himself to the culture. Any talk of headship and submission is simply buried in the fact that that's what this culture did in spades that the idea of a patriarchy, a, a headship of man that ruled with an iron thumb, that women were not treated with as much value as husbands, is something that was so embedded in the culture that Paul's not gonna take the time to try to dismantle that. Now, I have a few issues with that in terms of the logic because if you're creating this new community where there's no distinctions, why would you even think about perpetrating structures or ways of life that are embedded in the dysfunctional culture that you live in? Why not take the opportunity to create a new paradigm by which people truly find their freedom in Christ and fulfill the roles and the responsibilities that God has given to them? But the fourth thing in this discussion, and I wanna talk a little bit about this, is true equality in marriage is mutual submission to one another. Now I'll talk about that in a, in a minute, but the idea is, is this idea of headship is an accommodation. So it's not really important and we can in a sense dismiss it. Uh, some of the articles I read would say, well, since he says in verse 21, you're to mutually submit to one another, it's okay for the wife to submit to her husband. The real issue is, will the husband submit to his wife because of mutual submission? I'll get there in a minute, but let me mention the fifth one. Paul is simply accommodating himself to the culture of that time. Equality would have been an entirely new concept to that culture. They wouldn't have been able to swallow it if you beat him up with a stick. There's a few cultures that I know of that doesn't matter what you talk about, you wouldn't get them to buy into anything either. Uh, they're not the only culture that won't buy into what the truth of what God, in fact, I would dare you to show me a culture that buys in anything God does apart from the redemptive work of Christ. Uh, 
Humanity is separated from God. We have suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We have no interest as, as fallen humanity to follow what God wants to do. But the question is, is there a right or wrong? I would suggest to you a little bit, but the idea of this sort of pristine idea of total equality is, is uh, hard to live up to just because we have broken men and women. The idea of a hierarchy where the man has dominance and can tell the wife how to live life, I think is a bit of a mis way to communicate this as well. I, I treat them a little bit as false alternatives. But what is this idea of mutual submission? Well, let me at least explain the nature of it. Ephesians 5, verse 21, finishes this whole dialogue talking about uh, the community of faith and knowing God's will, and it says this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the question is, obviously, what does he mean submit to one another? Because the term has about to place yourself under the authority. So how do you place each other under the authority of another person? Well, you can get back to things like respect and honor and those kinds of things, but I believe that the best way to think about this is take the parallel passage in Colossians and see how it words it. For instance, Colossians 3, 16 and 17 has almost the very identical statement as you have in Ephesians 5. So there's some wordage that is different, but I believe they're talking about exactly the same things. For instance, when it says, be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the parallel se segment in verse 16 is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I believe they're talking about the same filling, the same experience, the same work of God. They're, he's just wording it differently. So if you want to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit, it does not mean memorize 300 verses for wanna. That's okay. But what it means is, is that your life needs to be so nourished and saturated that God's word reshapes your beliefs and values and priorities and behaviors. It needs to richly fill our life in such a way that there's life change, not just educational information. And so those are, in a sense, synonymous statements. And then they both go on and talk about teaching and admonishing one another. Ephesians talks about addressing one another, depending on the version you have. And then he talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then, so they're very similar. The only place that they deviate is in this, that Ephesians 5 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I believe the parallel statement in Colossians to help us understand that is whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think that's exactly the point. And in that sense, I would agree that the idea of mutual submission is that I need to treat you as a representative of Christ, I need to honor you and respect you and I need to treat everybody that way. That doesn't mean I have the emotional capacity to be best friends with all of you. You probably wouldn't want that anyway. You got enough to deal with on your plate without having to deal with all my stuff. But the idea here is that I believe the idea of sub mutual submission is that whatever we do in relationship to one another, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I, so having said that, I don't believe it just takes the idea of headship and submission and washes away. The fact is, Paul then turns around and actually brings it up in the discussion. And so he comes to us and tries to communicate it. Now before I deal with that, 
Let me uh, suggest you uh, this idea of accommodating the scriptures. Uh, One of the arguments here is that because the scriptures never come out and explicitly say slavery is wrong, then a person could conclude, well then it's okay to be a master with slaves. Now the analogical comparison to us isn't master-slave relationship is the way we traditionally understand it. We would lateral that into the workplace because they have people who are business owners, they pay you to do a job, and in in that sense, and you take this with a real grain of salt, they own you, you, they've asked you to work and they're paying you, so you're accountable to them. And I think that's the proper place in our context where you would put it. I don't know any Christians who would advocate a a master-slave relationship anymore because of the tenor of Scripture. But it's not explicitly stated in the Scriptures to say, look, we need to start abolishing this. Paul and them spoke on how to live within those frameworks, but didn't say to abolish it. Now, that's the same argument used here, is that Paul's not going to spend a lot of time trying to abolish things like headship and submission, but since it's so part of the culture, he's telling them how they should live that way rather than whether they should have it at all. Now, when you think about it, I I wanted you to note one accommodation that Jesus makes that shows the complexity of this. Matthew 22, um, there is a statement that comes about the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection uh, who come to Jesus and gives this interesting scenario. And Matthew 22 is an interesting text because they say, well, Moses told us this. So he's going back to the Old Testament law and say, here's what Moses told us to do. If a man is married and he dies and doesn't leave any sons, then the instruction was is that his brother was supposed to marry his wife to bring in a progeny for his, his brother. But the scenario they create is, well, the second one marries her and he dies, doesn't leave any children. The third one does it and all the way through and he's got seven brothers who marry this gal and they never have any kids. Something about that sounds just wrong, just thinking about it, but anyway. So their question comes back and says, well, okay, uh, if that's the case then, in the resurrection, because they were pushing back on Jesus, who's married to who? Now Jesus doesn't go back and try to do anything in explaining Moses' comments at all. But what he does say is this, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So one of the arguments that Jesus makes here is, hey, these, the idea of marriage, whether you're talking about Genesis chapter 2 or what Moses said, or whether they're dealing with their dysfunctional ideas of resurrection, someday in heaven, after the resurrection, God's going to do away with even marriage. It's an accommodation God created to exist here in order to fulfill the mission that God wanted them to fulfill. And we still keep that today. And it's part of what's going on. But the idea here is that even Jesus says, look, down the road in the resurrection, we're not going to do that anymore. So you could call it an accommodation at this point because God is trying to flesh something out with broken human beings and trying to fulfill his purpose at the same time. Here's the comment that Gordon Fee makes. Precisely because the present age is in the process of passing away, and because cultural shame was at the very heart of the Christian gospel, Paul was quite ready to yield yield on certain cultural matters so as not to predicate the shame on lesser things. Thus one should hardly expect him to tinker with roles and structures in a world that is on its way out. 
Though he recognizes their existence, he does not argue that they are divinely ordained. Rather, since Christ and the Spirit have already pronounced death on the old order, one can live as Christ's servant regardless of ethnicity or status. Well, if he doesn't want to tinker with it, I'm confused why he brings it up. When you hit verse 22, he says, oh, wives, submit to your, hu- your husbands, and he makes a big deal about it. Husbands is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he doesn't go back to even anchor it to Adam and Eve. He doesn't go back to try to correct the things of the curse. In fact, he, he picks a whole new paradigm. He picks a whole new example, a whole new blueprint, which I'm kind of like, listen, if you don't want to tinker with this stuff, stop bringing it up. If you're not trying to encourage people to live this way, just drop it. I mean, it's kind of like a salesperson who keeps talking, and you can't figure out whether he's trying to convince himself or someone else. And, And so when Paul writes this, I think there's a purpose for it. And I don't think mutual submission within the community of faith just suddenly eliminates the idea of headship and submission. Now, having been said that, how do we explore this? Well, the other side of the coin is this. The belief that headship gives husbands the authority to lead, protect, and care for his wife and family. That's sort of what we might call the complementarian. That this is an assigned responsibility and... For lack of better terms, this isn't like biblical terms, but get at it, like do it. The second is that there is a hierarchy to which the wife is to submit to the husband's leadership. They, they would anchor this back into the creation where God created Adam, he did on-the-job training. He commanded her, we only explicitly have that God commanded Adam of not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so I assume it was his responsibility to communicate that to Eve. And, and so as he that there is some sense of responsibility. When God comes back after the fall, he talks to Adam first. Now that's dismissed out of hand by those who would have an egalitarian argument. They go, that's just the genre of the the literature. It doesn't mean anything. I'm uncomfortable with that. Then he says, headship is a divine responsibility for the man and submission is responsibility of the wife to the husband. (laughs) And the argument would be because the Bible says so. Because the danger here is that we're going to use ambiguity in culture to just kind of set it aside and says it doesn't mean anything. Now, that would be insulting to those who make those arguments on that side. That's too trivial and uh, too pejorative in terms of the extensive amount of study that people have put into it. But my compulsion is I have to keep dealing with the text the way it's written because I think all Scripture is inspired. I get concerned when we use too much ambiguity and too much culture to start saying, this whole section here doesn't really mean anything. Now, I get what's going on, and I understand the difficulties and the ambiguities with this, but it's also a concern because what you will have, and some churches do this, when you talk about Galatians 3.28, and there's no distinction between male and female, our LGBTQ plus friends are saying, yeah, we've been telling you that for years. And you will find churches that will embrace that reality and say, yeah, we agree, there's no distinction, and so more than welcome to be here and to practice what's natural for you. There's another practical outworking of it I saw on the news the other day. It had to do with the LGBTQ folks, but it was the transgender where you've got uh, boys becoming women in high school, and then they want to compete in female athletics and destroy the competition. And so 
it's usually a fine issue to talk about equality until that starts happening and then someone who has a daughter trying to compete in a, in a sport is going like, wait a minute, my, my daughter has no chance at this. So it, there's a lot of complicated issues and I'm not here to say one way or another, I'm just saying the idea of equality isn't quite as simple as we often think about it. It's, we, we gotta be careful that we don't get uh, perfunctory about it or get cliche about it. It's a deep issue that we're trying to figure out. But the other element here is that the model for headship and submission is patterned after Christ's headship of the church. If you didn't want to tinker with it, Paul, don't go and anchor it to Christ and the gospel because that's essentially what he does here. Now the argument on the other side is, well, the gospel eliminates all role distinctions, especially based on gender. You're confusing us, Paul. Like, what are you doing? Stop bringing it up and making a big deal about it if this thing is supposed to not be in the equation. Now, how do we understand this thing? Well, I'm kind of like right here in the argument. Does that help you a lot? <laughs> well, maybe I'm over here, but you don't know where I'm starting. Here, here let me try to suggest to you something that I think, I think still deals fairly with the text, but also helps us to not think of it in very pejorative terms. Jesus was walking one day, and he entered Capernaum, and there was a centurion who came forward to him, one of the big tough leader guys from the Roman, Roman legion type stuff. So this guy is what we might call a man's man, big tough warrior type guy. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. Seems kind of interesting thing that this big tough centurion who's got legions and to look after is concerned about one servant. If servants don't matter that much, they're more like property than what's the big deal. But he seems deeply concerned about him. And he said to him, I will come, this is Jesus, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And then he makes a very interesting statement. He says, I too, like you, am under authority. And then he explains what that means. Now most commentators will pick this up pretty easily. Hey, I tell men to go and do this and that and they do it and, and if I were to give them orders, they'll just go and do it. And, and so he recognizes that Jesus is a man who's under authority, which gives him the authority to just say the word and his servant would be healed. But it's a different way to express authority. It's not, when Jesus in Matthew 20 was talking to his disciples and they were like fighting over who's the greatest, like that never happened to anybody, but anyway, Jesus says, hey, hang on guys, knock it off. I don't want you to ever lord it over people, exercise dominion, exercise that authority over others like the Gentiles do, but if you really want to be great in my kingdom, you need to learn to be a slave. You need to learn to be a servant. And I believe that this idea of being under authority is probably the best way to look at the idea of headship. Why? Well, here's the reason why. Jesus to me, and again, I'll give you both sides of this because certain people would dismiss this out of hand because Jesus' relationship to the Father is so transcendent above our brokenness, they go, it doesn't count. Well, when Jesus came to earth, it counted. It doesn't matter how temporary it is, it certainly counted when he came to earth. 
In fact, Philippians 2, he surrendered all the privileges and freedoms and rights, and he became a bondservant to the Father's will. He didn't come to do his own will, but he came to do the, the Father's will. So he was under authority to carry out the plan of redemption. But I rarely saw Jesus, unless it was with the Pharisees, trying to dominate other people. He invited them into things, but he didn't make demands. He gave commands. But the point is this, is that Jesus lived under the authority of the Father. He came to do his will, not his own. He came and was obedient to his Father, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So he was quite willing, even though he is equal with the Father, to take a role that lived under the authority of, his, of the Father in order to accomplish the plan of redemption. My point is simply this, just because there is a hierarchy or there's levels of, let's say, authority and responsibility or different roles and responsibilities that way, doesn't in and of itself make it evil. Because the argument of our times is, well, if there's any, any place where there's discrimination, like if I wanted to come to the IF conference, can I come? Didn't hear anybody bite on that one. <laughs> I know you will, you just wanna see if I'll do it, don't you? <laughs> but it's a woman's event. Would they exclude the guys? Yeah, probably, I, I think they would. They don't need male testosterone running around in there. They wanna, they wanna have a woman's thing. Does that make us less than them? No, I don't think so. Depends what the speakers are talking about, I guess, I don't know. But, but the idea is, I don't think this idea of hierarchy in and of itself is evil in and of itself. Now when you're dealing with broken humanity, sometimes it can become evil. By the way, husbands have abused and, and dominated their spouses and their families, that's evil. Sometimes the way wives have treated their husbands has been evil too, because I know some wives who are very abusive and can really try to manipulate their husbands. It doesn't matter whether it's parenting or whatever. And so those things can become difficult for us. But I wanna suggest to you that the idea, the model for carrying out headship as far as the man is concerned, uh, is not based on Adam and Eve and it's not based on the curse, it's modeled after Christ and the church. It's a whole new breath of fresh air to say, listen, if you're this new community, your culture isn't gonna understand this, so I'm not gonna base it even on Adam and Eve, I'm gonna base it on the gospel and I'm gonna base it on Christ. So husbands, you have a headship, and wives, you're to submit to your husbands. But the question is, what does that mean? Well, here's what I will suggest to you. The husband is under God's authority and entrusted with a role, defined as headship, in this covenant of marriage that has two primary responsibilities to his wife, not over his wife. That may seem like a trite thing, but that's an important distinction to me. This is, this, being under authority isn't to dominate his wife, it's a responsibility to his wife. And I think the best way to define headship is simply this, that he's to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what it means to be a head of your wife. I think the headship means to love her as you would love yourself, to nourish and cherish her. That's what I think he's defining here as far as headship. I don't read in there that you get to tell her what to do, you have the final say on everything, that you get to, to dictate everything. 
Headship means you're to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, if we could do a better job at that, we wouldn't have to worry about all this ruling and dominating and manipulating. I mean, that would, and I think, guys, we have, under God's authority and given a responsibility, that this is what headship looks like. And listen, you and I, whether it's phases in our life or sometimes it's the demeanor of our life, sometimes do this really badly. Because we're more interested in our hobbies and our tinker toys than we are about nurturing and cherishing our wife. And so the very fact that we are under authority means that we only have the authority to carry out those things. We don't have, it doesn't give us authority to do whatever we want. It gives us authority to flesh these things out in our marriage. And so the idea here is that the husband's headships means that he will be accountable to God who has entrusted this responsibility to him for carrying out those responsibilities to his wife. So I define headship as love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love her as you'd love your own body and nurture and cherish her. That's carrying out your headship. It's not means I have the final say on everything. And I'll prove that in a moment. But it's a divine assignment that we're accountable on how we do it. We can't ignore it, give it away, pay someone else to do it, or abdicate it. And it's one of the greatest reasons why I think that we can't just say, okay, well, if we've got complete equality, women have as much say, and I'll, I'll qualify this in a minute. You know what's going to happen in a lot of homes? The guys are going to go, oh, you want to say in it? Good. I'm going to go play video games. You, you want to knock yourself? I don't want to put all that much effort into it. Knock yourself, go ahead, take over. And it, I think it, in a practical sense, it's gonna have, would have some difficult ramifications. Now, a lot of couples would be fine. But there's always this danger. And I believe God is giving the man a privilege to make a positive contribution in his life that parallels Christ, not the same, of course, Christ's headship over the church has totally unique things to it that, can't be replicated. The man isn't the savior of, a, of his wife, but he can be a sanctifying influence so that she can become the woman that God wants her to become, not in spite of him, but because of him. So the hard part, then what does submission mean? Well, you know, if I had about well, 12 more hours, I could have coined this a little bit better this week, but let me give you three thoughts. One is trusting that God that he has given her husband a divine responsibility. She's to encourage and empower him to fulfill that role, which to me goes right against the fall complex, like your desire is against your husband, and the desire will be, I know better, and I'm going to manipulate and try to control this situation so he's doing what I want him to do rather than what God wants him to do. If you don't remember, I can go back and preach on Adam and Eve and their little tangle. But that's, if she does well, it's fine. If she, it doesn't go well, then that's the danger. The second is commit to fulfilling her role to help him or be a helper and help him and them remain faithful to God so they are actively carrying out the mission of the gospel. God gave a mission to Adam and Eve. They're not just to sit around and have kids and do nothing. He gave them a mission and that was part of it. 
but she can be one of the most empowering influences to help that get done. And then thirdly, respecting her husband that so she will not go outside of this relationship to find sacrificial love, nourishing, and cherishing that only her husband should be providing for her. If she's going to be submissive, she's going to choose to say, I'm looking to you for this. Now, there's a bunch, you know, open the door. We could do this all day, I suspect. But I also know that I, I believe that the idea of headship and submission uniquely defines relationship between husband and wife. You don't read it in other places. In fact, when you get to chapter 6, the statement is, children, obey your dads because he's the head of the home. Now, this is getting really fussy, but I even think the idea of saying that the husband is the head of the home is a bit of a misnomer. Some of you aren't going to like that, I suspect. But it, it never talks about being the head of the home. It's, it's a unique relationship between husband and wife. And if he carries out this headship, it involves two things. Love your wife like Christ loved and nurture and cherish her. That's the defining element of headship and submission is I'm going to look to you for that. We're going to be in, I'm, I'm going to be connected to you. I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you. And as we carry out the mission of the gospel, we're doing this together. Because when you get to chapter 6, it doesn't say children obey your dad because he's the head of the home. It doesn't say children obey your mom because she's done more research than your dad will ever do and she knows all the, she needs all the food types, she knows what you're allergic to do, she knows what colors you should wear. I've heard this, <laughs> I know it's funny, but I've heard this. I've heard guys just go, well, she's done a whole lot more research about raising kids than I do, so I'm, I'm just going to leave it up to her, she has the say. I, I, someone told me I came that close to decking them. Well, I, did, I have to admit, I was, my flesh just kind of went right off the moon because I'm kind of like, you've got to be involved in parenting. It, does, it says, children, obey your parents. You've got to be on the same page. You do this together. Now, I know some people have had the unfortunate of being single parents. The possible good thing about that is you only have one voice speaking into them and there's not a lot of conflict most of the time. You know, you don't want to threaten consequences to bad behavior and then never follow through. That gets really conflicted. But I don't know a single parent that wouldn't absolutely trade their last dime to have a partner in there parenting their kids. And thank God for the church where other men and families will rally around those families and move alongside and help men learn how to be men and move along women and girls to help them understand they're loved and cared for. And so the, the idea is that I think we have a responsibility. And I think we're under authority, guys, that we're going to be accountable for it. And it's not about ruling with an iron thumb. It's about loving our wives sacrificially and nurturing and cherishing them so that they become everything that God wants them to be, not in spite of us, but because of us. That we become a positive catalyst. And frankly, we will never become the people that we will if it isn't for our wives being this helper that, that energizes us to be way better than we would be on our own. Let me finish with a letter that a husband wrote 
to his wife. It's a true story. Roger Zerbe suffered from an early onset of Alzheimer's disease. He journeyed journaled this to his wife after a particular troubling bout of forgetfulness. He said, honey, and her name was Becky, today fear is taking over my life. The day is coming that all my memories of of this life that we share will be gone. You and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I'm surrounded by you and your love. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of our memories together. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and so painfully. She wrote back to him this. I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me he loved me, the look on his face when his children were born, the father that he was, the way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for riding and hiking and reading, his tears of sentimental movies, the unexpected unexpected witty remarks and how we held uh, hands while we prayed. I cherish the pleasure, the obligation, the commitment, and the opportunity to care for you because I will remember you. My encouragement, don't forget what God wants us to be about. You know, we can debate till the cows come home over all kinds of cultural issues and even biblical issues, and I'm not suggesting they're irrelevant, but I will suggest to you that you can have the perfect structure and still feel failure because there's broken men and women in it. But I can show you people that might be in a structure that may not be perfect and see them flourish because they're acting the way God wants them to act. Sometimes we spend way too much time making mountains out of molehills, fighting the wrong battles, rather than fighting for one another. And I want to encourage you as men, you may think differently about this, but if this truly is a responsibility of our headship, that we're under authority, I think it has two prongs to it. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Nourish and cherish her, and wives respond by empowering him to be the man of God that God has called him to be. Oh yeah, and, and don't forget, we're here to carry out a mission for Christ. It's the gospel. Pray with me.